Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited today about the, the guests that we have. You know, we're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, the highs, the lows of building a company. And he's been through the full cycle. So I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mahmoud Abdelkader. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here, Alejandro. So originally born in, in Egypt, actually, 60 kilometers away from Cairo. So, I mean, yeah. I'm sure that definitely quite a different environment from what you see there in Palo Alto nowadays. So, how, how was life growing up there? Well, I'm not in Palo Alto now. I'm actually, I've moved to San Rafael. I've moved in, I'm still in the Bay Area. Oh, there you go. But still a little bit different from what you saw there. And so, yeah. So, I mean, Egypt is a developing nation, right? It's also, but it has a it's very historic country. And so, it has a lot of real important, um, you know, antiquities and gives us a, a, a kind of like a view into the past you know I've, uh, I've done my 23 and me and i'm very very my family generationally has been very much located in that fertile crescent region right and so um but yeah it's, uh, it's actually it's a lot different of course you don't have the same opportunities that you have in the united states but it's changing right there's change there's entrepreneurship i advise people now uh, i'm an investor in a company called instabud um and uh you know i think you know i think it's it's really it's really Everything's working really well um, there, so I'm very hopeful for the country today. But yeah, you know, I think when I was raised there, I did not, I did not live in Cairo, which is the capital, right, of Egypt. But I did, you know, I was raised in a country, a small city called um, Ismailia, which is actually a where the Suez Canal Authority is, and so that's when my family all works in the Suez Canal Authority, right? So my uncle actually is a tugboat captain that takes the big ships. In and out of Suez Canal, and so um, that's kind of like what my family has done, and so that's it was really cool to know that that plays a big part of the economy of Egypt, and you know we have a small part in that. And then the other thing is, uh, it also helped me to you know when I came here, it's a lot different. It's a lot greener in the United States, right? Uh, <laughs> in Egypt, it's a lot of sand, a lot of sand, and so. Um, but yeah, yeah. But anyway, it was, it's, it obviously it's a lot of it's a it's a it's a very different. Uh, very different country compared to the United States, but it, it, they both have their pros and cons, right? Absolutely. I mean, you turn, you turn in, in, in your case, you turn eight, and that was a pivotal moment in your life because your parents, I mean, your father was a, in finance, a CFO kind of role. Your mother uh, was working for the government for the equivalent to the IRS there. 
But you turn eight and they make the decision that it's time to pack the bags and come for the American dream. So, so yeah. tell us about this. Yeah, I fundamentally, you know, I got to say it was one of the most amazing things that a parent can do for their children. My parents realized that in order for them to be able to give us the best possible future that they had to, you know, in this case, you know, make the one of the most daunting exercises and sacrifices of their life where they have to leave family, their safety, their social circles behind their jobs and go in search of this American dream in the United States so they can give us a opportunity to execute. It was never a dream that they thought about. They just sort of like appeared and materialized and they jumped at it. You know, my dad was here for a long time. He came out here uh, two times before we moved finally with him. Um, and so he would leave my mom for long stretches of like four months um, and then come back. And ultimately, in the third time, my mom was like, nope, I'm coming with you next time. And so that's what happened, you know. And so they they definitely made this like big sacrifice. And uh, we're very thankful to this day. There's nothing that we can do to pay that back. You know, I have four, I have uh, three sisters and two of them are uh, physicians. One is a uh, family medicine physician and the other one is a pulmonologist. So obviously with the COVID-19 situations that are happening here, um, she's, she, you know, so, and then my third, the, the third sister, she is a analyst, a sales analyst at Bloomberg. And so she, you know, my family's, you know, nothing we can do still to this day, you know, can pay back our parents for that ultimate, uh, ultimate migration. I mean, I, I'm sure that for you, that was, that was very inspiring too, because you went from seeing, you know, your father, perhaps uh, putting a suit and a tie and, and your mother, you know, same thing to go to to working in the corporate environment where they had like very, very successful jobs to coming here to the U S and literally working at restaurants. Oh yeah. My dad, my dad, yeah. My dad, my dad took whatever job he can do. He literally worked as a line person at a deli, worked his way up to become general manager of that. So that was very fortunate for us. My mom worked at a cashier at dry cleaners again, you know, so she had a career in, you know, in tax authority in Egypt. And so, you know, but took a and then she worked her way to become a regional director at uh, Sears when it was you know um, in its its heyday, and then you know eventually you know my mom went back went to school when she was forty uh, five and got her you know accounting degree equivalents in the United States and is now basically working as a part time tax uh, person at H and R Block and so and my dad's retired now but ultimately he you know when we were in New York we stayed when we immigrated to New York City we actually went to um, a place called Bay Ridge. So I went to like PS 185, Dyckford Heights Middle School. And when we immigrated, uh, that, you know, just going to this foreign environment with a completely different school system and a completely different language is pretty tough for us. Yeah. And, um, and my parents, you know, always instilled to us this work ethic, right, that we have to basically be the best at, you know, whatever we, does, we, we want to do. Like my mom is very famously known for, I get like a 97 or a 98 on an exam and she'd be like, but why wasn't it a hundred? You know, most people are happy with the ninety-eight. But right. my mom was like, "Why didn't you get the hundred? And so that's kind of like the environment that I grew up very like pressure uh, heavy because we knew that the one thing that we had here in this country is education, and so that's the ultimate sacrifice. So my parents made sure that that's something that we you know continue to excel at and really compete with. But again, and about in uh, in two thousand, my parents moved again to Maryland, uh, where I spent my high school. I went to finish my last bits of uh, middle school in uh, Maryland, and uh, I went to uh, Delaney High School. She was one of the founders of College Humor, 
also did that too from Delaney High School. Um, and I, you know, we, I went to, and I went to University of Maryland, College Park. So we stayed about another eight years in Maryland. I graduated and I uh, went to go work on Wall Street. And that was really the first, you know, just going from basically not making any money, you know, growing up, you know, having to work at like Home Depot or Lowe's or uh, Bertucci's Pizza. I mean, I used to actually make the pizza there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all the way to going to working on a trading floor in Wall Street right out of college. That was an experience that I got to tell you was a phenomenal shift in differences. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, one, one thing that for sure, you know, your experience, you know, either with Wall Street, because you obviously experienced the crash there also moving to a new country. I think that you, you perhaps developed that muscle of, of being able to deal with uncertainty to a certain extent. And I'm sure that, that has helped you as well as a founder, no? Oh, for sure. Look, I'll tell you, one of our values in our company today is authentic and resilient, right? And so that the, the, I, I, what this uncertainty helped me do is establish this, cult, this attitude of resilience. It's going to be better. It's going to get better, right? Just keep going. Just put your head down and keep executing. You know, it's very, it's, look, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, because you can always give up and it's easy. You know, one of the things that we value here in the United States is freedom, right? And so you're free to give up here. And so, yeah. and so by, by, by being resilient, by keeping your head down, by staying true to your core, right? By, and making sure that you treat folks with respect and empathy, you know, you can definitely have a really good shot at pursuing, you know, your vision and achieving the mission that you want out of life. And that, and that's something that I learned as an, as a immigrant entrepreneur is like, you know, that kind of work ethic and being able to just look basically reality in the face and say, no, it will not be like this. It will be the other way. That resilience comes from having that struggle going on. I'm not saying, you know, again, I was very fortunate because I was able to have a job, right? I was able to work. I was healthy, right? But again, I was like, you know, and that's kind of like a privilege that we don't talk about. I'm very thankful and fortunate about that. But at the end of the day, like, you know, that allowed me to realize that, yeah, uncertainty just comes with the job. That's what happens, right? So then in your case, you know, obviously you go through, through this experience at Wall Street, uh, then this crash happens, and then you make the decision of, of packing the bags and going to California and, and getting into startups. So, I mean, what, what motivated, I mean, what, what a shift. I got to tell you, it was not very well received by my parents. They're like, everything you've worked for, you're going to quit. Because remember, I still was on Wall Street during the crash. And so a lot of people are getting laid off, but luckily I was still there. I was building high frequency trading systems there. And so... And I'm getting paid a great salary, but you know, my parents looked at it and they're like, wow, like you struggled so hard. Are you going to leave and join this company called, you know, Milo.com and Palo Alto? And then they were like, what's the reason why? I was like, I just, I just think I belong there. I was like, I just like the culture that I just like doing that. And you know, it's very tough for them to swallow. They were like, very, they're like, this doesn't make any sense to us. And so, but I knew in my heart that it was the right way. And it's basically what I, you know, it's, it's, it's the pursuit of the resilience to you know is being resilient to pursue your vision in america and that was really um going out to palo alto and joining milo.com as employee number four that was like a phenomenal that was like a phenomenal experience for me just it literally shifted everything that i ever thought i knew and i had to learn from scratch and you know i had a great leader jack abraham who's now he was the ceo of milo and now is the ceo of atomic and has taken companies public like hims very proud to have worked under him and kind of like saw how he kind of like built an organization. I was like, I'm inspired to do the same, right? Nice. And funny enough, his co-founder, Andy, has been on the show. Andy Dunn. No so, way. That's, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, then, so then in your case, I think that with, uh, with Milo, 
you had the opportunity to to really have the exposure to the to the full cycle no? of yeah. I mean, employee number four, then the company sold for 75 million. So I guess out of that experience, which was kind of like what catapulted you to to say, hey, I can do this. You know, this is how it works. What I knew for sure was I did not want to go work at a big company after a year and a half. I just left a big company and I had just joined Milo and a year and a half wasn't enough time for me to just be in the school of hard knocks, right? I saw, obviously I'm looking at, I'm, Jack successfully exited that company, but I was just watching from the sidelines. I needed to feel what it was like. And I was like, I don't think, I think the things and the values and the resilience that I learned as an immigrant, those are the things that are going to be very valuable to me. And I had my share of companies that I was looking at and, you know, I was, you know, we eventually, uh, an ex-college friend of mine, you know, um, a college friend of mine was like, hey, I'm, I'm joining Y Combinator. Would you like to join me as a co-founder? I was like, yeah, let's do it, right? And so, like, we built this company together uh, called Balanced Payments. And I, I thought that was, and I actually talked to one of my buddies as well from, uh, who worked at Google, who went with me to college. And he was like, yeah, take, go take the Y Combinator position. You're going to learn a lot there. And I did. I learned a lot. That's obviously, like, what made it seem feasible not yeah. uh not not like not like jack worked real hard right and so i want to be very clear like i did not walk away i was like yes i want to do this someday but i did not know how or where to start and i think why common kind of gave me the discipline to understand the formula the algorithm the heuristic behind how to actually build something off the ground right got it and you know it's interesting because white combinator back then you know it was saying uh, obviously kind of like the the early years you know like the the new founders coming out, uh, and now obviously Y Combinator is harder to get into than than Harvard, no? So it's yeah, a, I look, and look, it's a new MBA. It's a new, yeah. in my mind, it's a new MBA, right? If you're going to want to get an MBA, why would you go spend a year learning about it instead of doing it? And I think, I think, and so I like, I, I really think that, you know, so you know, kudos to them. They really, Paul Graham and Jessica and the rest of the team there built a fantastic program that we learned a lot from, right? And luckily, these relationships have benefited me to this point. So what was the business model of balanced payments? It's a per transaction model, right? So if you make a three dollar if you make ten dollars, for example, I take three percent of that. So I you know, make thirty cents, right? Got it. And yeah. and then so so tell us about that journey. I mean, how was building balanced payments into into essentially your first baby, your first exit? So I mean not bad. Yeah, and so look, very fortunate to be able to have built a great team. Right. And, um, and be able to land our customers in a really good spot there. Uh, and look, we exited to Stripe, which was a fantastic, you know, um, you know, transition for us and our customers as well, you know, which has now become one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable US based startup right now. And so the, for us, you know, being able to build a company starting that and then kind of seeing what it was like to go to market was very beneficial for us. But I will tell you, it was not what I considered. Um, like today, the VGS motion, a very good security motion, is completely different than it was at Balance. It's just a completely different motion. And so uh, go to market motion, right? And so uh, Balance was about winning that mind share and then trying to get people to basically route their transactions through you. So your goal was to just route your transactions to us so that we can make money, right? And then eventually, that's kind of like what a lot of the fintech startups that you see today and the fintech movements is effectively spearheaded by companies like Square, companies like Stripe, right? WePay, who sold to Chase, um, you know, Kickstarter, and then all the and Balance, right? All these folks have come into the into the, into the play here 
um, and you know have kind of like really shown how you can innovate in the financial space that was before considered too difficult to enter, right? And that's really what I really love about it. So that's one of the things. Yeah. So exiting the strike was a fantastic achievement, but it was not without its ups and downs. I mean, you have to be very resilient to be in that business, right? You hold. Yeah. No. Of course. Yeah. But you know, one thing that is interesting is. You know, now everyone, you know, we were, we were putting the similarities between universities and then also Y Combinator. Uh, I mean, all the content that, that you can get into, I mean, it's from universities, it's all online. I think that now in, in Y Combinator, I mean, pretty much, you know, with startup school and things like that, they're putting great content out there. But in your case, I mean, you ended up exiting your business to another alum of Y Combinator, which is the Stripe co-founders, they call it some brothers, no? So I guess uh, how important is to build as an entrepreneur the networks around you. That's a, you know, when they tell you to who, about who you know, that doesn't make sense until you have the network, right? Until you, and people, because you're ultimately building your reputation, right? Are you a reputa- are you a reputable, trustworthy individual? And the only way to do it is to work with someone, right? So ultimately, and deliver results. And so the network that you create with you is effectively networks of like-minded individuals from all different backgrounds, all different types, right? And they all have this one thing in common, which is how do I bend reality to my will, my way? And so it's really interesting how, you know, that group of folks here, and they have their very similar ups and downs. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of things that people don't talk about, it's like, it's very lonely as founders, right? You are basically there. And, you know, if you're not comfortable being alone, <laughs> Not, it's not a good job for you, and so you know it's a real, it's a real, it's a real risk. It's a real problem, and so, um, and so you know the, the idea, the just being able to like have that network around you, not only for support but to kind of bounce ideas from, has been valuable to anybody that goes through this uh, this, this process by, by themselves, right? Got it. So then the acquisition happens. Uh, we stripe, and obviously this opened the door to what's next. And as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. <laughs> and in your case. Uh, the bus, you know, with another idea, you know, came into place and that bus ended up being very good security. So so tell us about how you came up with the idea and how you brought it to life. Yeah. So the idea actually approached us. I've always, as I was building balance, the first thing I took a look at was, it, you know, just get started in that company, right? There's no like VGS at the time. There's no, even AWS was kind of new for you to use, right? Uh, it took it, it took us about a year and a million dollars of investment just so that you can build a security posture so that you can start building your payments business, right? And then you had to maintain that security posture every single year. And balance was five years in, uh, in, in business and we had to maintain it for five years. So, and that took three months of our time Plus, it took three full-time people that are dedicating the three months, and it took money to support and auditing and kind of like business disruptions. And so it almost felt like you were racking your own data center all the time. And that's how it felt. It was like racking your, you just switched from a data center to now a cloud, but it felt like you were building your own primitives to do data security in this cloud so that you can go to market with your product. It felt like it was undifferentiated heavy lifting. And I've always, so I had to do this. But it was really weird when I kept watching these companies get breached on the internet or the news, breaches happen. Somebody gets broken into, large retailer, like hackers go into and steal hundreds of millions of payment information. I'm like, wow, like, I think security is an obstacle to usability. It's, a, it's an obstacle. And I've always thought about it and I was like, 
And I was like, you know, there's got to be some way to solve this problem. Somebody's going to come out with the real solution here. And, you know, funny enough, when we had that exit to Stripe, uh, folks reached out to us on LinkedIn or via text message via the network that we talked about, right? And basically asked, hey, we need to do this. We need to achieve a business goal. We need to like, I think it was the first, one of the first customers was a company called LendUp, which has rebranded to Mission Lane now. Uh, and they were like, we need to issue a card. Today, you have many card issues. Mar Marketa, I think, might go public soon. Um, like, you know, Galileo just sold to um, uh, so SoFi. Uh, but I just want you to think about it. Like, before that happened, before that existed, you had to do all of that yourself. And, uh, you know, you have to, like, to issue a card. You have to connect to, like, legacy players. And these legacy players required you to have a data security posture because that's what they expected all the other big companies to do. And it was mandated, not by them, but it was mandated by their banks, all the risk supply chain, right? Mandates to, for, you, for you to be able to like satisfy four three-letter acronyms more than you can think of, right? And that's only for data security, not even talking about moving money, for example. So like, because that has its own US-based, if you're in the United States, you have your US-based like uh, Office of Financial Asset Control, OFAC, know your customer checks, which happens after the United States Patriot Acts 1 and 2 that were passed after the September 11th attacks. And so the big problem that you have to think about is like, wow, it's very difficult to start a business in a regulated industry because I have to spend time doing data security. I have to be comply with all these laws. And then I, and then not only that, that is just undifferentiated heavy lifting for me to start building my business, right? And so companies reached out to us and they're like, I don't want the payments piece. I want what you did, that undifferentiated piece, so I can go to market quickly to connect to whoever I need to connect to. And so I was like, well, why couldn't you know all these other players do it? Like, well, they, we can't use them. They don't do what you are got, what we want to do here. So we have to do this ourselves. That's the only other way. And I was like, oh wow, this is a very you know, I was just reading something about Jeff Bezos, and that was something where he was like, This is a market. If somebody says that, your margin is my opportunity, is what he says. And so I was like, wow, like I wonder. I wonder if this is like a play. I just like shrugged it off. It was just something really interesting. But after we were able to successfully get this company to not only be a keynote speaker at Money 2020, but let them go live in under a month where previously it would have taken them a year, that was when we realized the aha moment. The, uh, their own auditors started referring customers to us. They started referring customers to us. People started hearing. And so folks started reaching out to us. And we were thinking, oh, we're going to do something maybe you know, something else for developers or whatever, because that's what we built at Balance. And we had no idea that this was what companies wanted. They just wanted to be able to do their business outcome, achieve their business outcomes, you know, achieve their business goals without having to worry about yeah. sensitive data. And that's really the, the, the founding story about, balance, uh, about VG, very good security because VGS, I'm going to start calling it VGS now, but you know the we it was a really interesting uh, conversation because we were like, well, this is an opportunity. There's nobody doing it, and the only solution is doing it yourself. You have to stitch together basically half baked solutions, and that's what people. That's why people got breached. That's why these retailers would get breached because it's not a core competency of them. It's just something that they had to do, and they do it because they need to achieve a business goal, accept payments, issue a card, do something, right? Like run a background check it had to it's all about doing that and so that's really what vgs is right every company is a data company how do you guys make how do you guys make money then uh, at vgs what ended up being the business model yeah so there's been a couple of iterations on that right and so 
VGS basically charges you based on, you know, we have this thing called zero data, right? And so this is the idea of, can you use your data in a way where you can maximize its value to the fullest extent without physically storing the data itself? So think about it like a credit card. You actually, if you and I are sending money to each other, it's not like I physically hop on a plane or drive to where you are and give you this physical currency, right? I right. just use Venmo or I PayPal to you or I go to a bank account. I can use networks to move instructions that will effectively, basically virtually without touching any of the, the, the money, I can basically exchange value of money without physically exchanging money itself. Would you, this is a very nuanced and very important concept because we do it today, but we don't actually realize that before we did it, we literally physically moved gold bullions to destinations. And that's how we exchanged value alongside currency, right? But when we've digitized it and digitized money, what is the equivalent of moving data safely? How do you move value of data from physical data exchanges itself? And that is what VGS does. So to do that, there's a variety of ways today that people exchange this data on the internet. And what VGS does from a pricing model is it basically says, if you want, are you, if you're exchanging it in this manner, for example, lots of systems have very large legacy batch processes, right? You'll, you'll hear about them, like big files come in at the end of the day, some files run. That's why it almost takes you 24 hours to get something or 48 hours to get something in a bank or whatever. And you basically realize that people have to exchange data using these big SF, you know, FTP or large batch file processing. And they do it. Uh, so what we do is like, okay, you can pay a particular fee for the set of data for this protocol to access the data exchanges through that. It will literally just sit in front of your company that your destination that you're connecting to. And then what it will do is it will charge you based on how often we, you know, create or interact with sensitive data as you're exchanging that data, right? And then over time, as you get to a particular um, threshold of volume, it might make sense for you to negotiate more of a fixed rate than a per transaction. And this per transaction is like more of a per data transaction rate. Does that make sense? And so yeah. that's, that's how he just charges today. So then in your case, I mean, this was quite a, quite a move, quite a change, because on balance payments, you were the CTO. Uh, now here you were taking the reins as the CEO. So was that a challenging uh, shift or, or, or change in your, in your journey? Still is. Look, as a CTO, a founding CTO that basically, I mean, balance never got to above 25, 30 people, right? So being a CTO of a company where your engineers might have been 15 engineers is a completely different organization than being a CTO like my, my co-founder right now is, uh, was actually my VP of engineering at uh, Balanced. And you could start to see he's hitting his limits of managing the organization. And that's really the job of the CTO is that you hit the limits and then you bring in like a stellar VP of engineering to run in, right? And so... Uh, we're almost 200 people right now. So that's the difference to give you kind of the scale. So he was able to do that orders of magnitude better than me. But what I'm doing as a CTO to CEO transition, being able to communicate effectively has been a, quite a challenge because when you communicate with a computer or you communicate when you talk about technical, it's typically facts, right? You just exchange facts and the way yeah. you, you communicate is really the difference. But with, you know, when you're a CEO, you have to be a jack of all trades. To the point where it's like, hey, you know, finance doesn't know what the data looks like or if the data is wrong. So you have to like get in there and be a data engineer at a time. Or you have to go in there and be like, well, what are the questions that we need to ask to answer, right? Or law, law like I have to negotiate contracts. Like, why do I have to negotiate contracts? I just like write code. Like that 
that doesn't make any sense to me. So like, I have to know what these contracts are saying now. And so I have to know like what we're agreeing to and what we're committing to contractually, right? So being a CEO is now a risk management game. It's like, how do you basically minimize the risk while continuing to drive shareholder value and, you know, really achieving the mission that you set up to build the company for? That's what a company is, right? A CEO is a head of captain, is a ship, is a, a company's a ship. CEO is like the captain and they're trying to get the ship from, you know, Europe to the United States. And you have to figure out a way to do it in a way where everybody stays alive. Right. And, you know, the, the end goal is to get it, you know, to the new world. Right. So that's my vision. That's the, you know, and so my vision is the way that I see the world and my mission is to get the ship from point A to point B. And so that is a completely different skill set because now I have to work with human beings, not computers. Right. Yeah. Or that, yeah. And so, and, and, and then, a CEO is all the organizational work that you have to do as well, right? And so how do you work with thinking about, over, uh, you know, with organizations and systems thinking, which actually is a good skill set for a CTO, but you have to translate that to working with human beings and they have to translate that one level down. That's a, that's a very difficult thing to do. And that's really the hardest thing. I still am learning. I still am learning uh, how to do that. So I would say the transition isn't fully done yet. <laughs> That's good, good. So um, in terms of, I mean, you were alluding to shareholder value, to investors. How much money have you guys raised to date? We've raised $105 million. Got it. And this yeah, was obviously the, it's a lot of money and a lot of expectations. Remember, remember, remember I came from Egypt. I think, <laughs> yeah. my, I think my family was entirely, it's, it's, it's entire worth was like $200, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And so, and so we came here like maybe $200 in our pocket, which is a lot of money still. But my point is like, you get to a situation where it's like now, you know, I've raised as this immigrant from Egypt, you know, 25 years ago. I now have raised $105 million from arguably one of the, some of the most prestigious folks in the world and i i, I tell you, i'm very humbled and fortunate that i'm able to do that right because i have the i've won their trust and so i just want i just want to take a moment here and just like reflect on we started the story with you were born in egypt and it's malaya and now you know now in san francisco in the bay area and we have raised 105 million dollars so you know america is amazing right you can really achieve anything you set your minds to oh america is amazing and 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 I'm an immigrant just like you. So definitely the, the land the land of opportunity. So where are you from? So, where from? From Spain, from Madrid. I love Spain. Madrid. Yeah. I love Barcelona. We had a we had a uh, we had a company retreat in Barcelona. It was really amazing. You know, I always say that the the best combination in the world is the the people the people from Madrid in the city of Barcelona. You know, it's just because with, with Catalanes, you need a special patience, even though I love Catalanes and I have many friends from, <laughs> from Catalonia, but I still don't understand why they want to get independent, but still live from the government's budget. Anyways, that's, a, that's probably a different that's discussion. A, that, that sounds like a different discussion, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so yeah. let's say in your case, you know, going back to the investors, obviously, you know, they were really enrolled in, in the vision, in what you guys are creating at, at BGS. Uh, so imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where, you know, let's say five, five or seven years later, whatever that is, in a world where the vision of the business is fully realized. What does that world look like? I mean, let's take it. Let's take, that's amazing. So I appreciate it. So what, what does that world look like for us? Right. And so have companies, have the world gotten used to the fact that they can achieve business outcomes and build their entire day-to-day -day business workflows without having to hold the data. I think Jeff, that's the biggest challenge right now for very good security, right? Which is how do we do this? How, how do we change your mindset? How do you start to realize that you don't have to download software and install it and maintain it, but you just, you know, that's what Salesforce did, right? It was the SaaS model, right? How do you do it with data too? How do I basically do 
data maximization as a service. That's the real value. Five, 10 years from now, you know, hopefully we're a public company. You know, I'm talking about a lot about the vision and I'm, you know, making sure that the world realizes that you do not need your data in order to, maxim to maximize its value. And here's where we have built a, a world without this, you know, without the occurrences of breaches at the rate that they currently occur at, right? Like the frequency is alarming. The amount of personal privacy violations is alarming, right? I think as a company, this is something we're looking at very, very clearly. Like how do you protect the average user, right? What American or not, and protect their privacy, which is a fun, you know, it's a fundamental human right from, from, you know, the, the, you know, using companies online that potentially are, you know, going to leak their data, leak their metadata, leak everything about their day to day. And that's identity becomes a very important thing to think about. And so this is where VGS looks like in the world. We've, we've achieved our vision. We have shifted the conversation to let's talk about identity. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And now when we're talking about privacy. I mean, today, without going further, you know, the news of WhatsApp, you know, moving forward with their changes and, you know, we don't have to get into that, but I, I thought, you know, it was interesting. I actually read it on Hacker News, which is, you know, obviously part of Y Combinator too. But let's say we have here, Mahmoud, the opportunity of putting you in a time machine and we bring you back in time. We bring you back, back. to, let's say, to that moment, you know, where you are at Milo, uh, thinking about starting your own thing on your own. Uh, wondering what that world is going to look like. And, and essentially, you have the chance to have a chat with your younger self. And you are able to give that younger self that is thinking about becoming an entrepreneur one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I have a joking answer and I have a real answer. Can I give you the joking answer? Let's hear both. I will tell my younger self to buy game stock Stock. Okay. Okay. Like, hold, hold it and hold Bitcoin too. Okay. That's, that's my joke answer. Right? Okay. <laughs> but let's assume that's not the case, right? Let's say, right. I don't, hey, I think the thing I would say is, you know, invest in relationships early because you don't know. That's the thing I, I thought it was all about you and kind of like what you can do, but to do what we do today. That's why I never will say I, right? What we do today as a company requires organization of a lot of folks. And it took me time to realize that to build the network that we mentioned earlier, you know, that I needed to be able to execute on my vision was something that should have started five years ago. Okay. Wow. So that, that's the, that's the thing that I'll tell myself. I right? was like, don't underestimate the value of your friends and who they are and how you judge them. And I think that's the, that is really the, 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 the thing I would give myself, like make sure you surround yourself with the people that you want to work for and work with. Right. Absolutely. That's very profound. So Mahmoud, for the people that are listening and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, uh, honestly, our Twitter handles get VGS, right? So you can just tweet at that. My Twitter handles uh, at Mamudimus, just reaching on Twitter, or you know you can always email me. I actually, my email, my website mamudimus.com actually shows you my New York-based apartment that had a tower of Coke zeros that I was building and coding in, uh, and it has oh, there my email, which is mamud at linux.com. So you can feel free to reach out to me there, and um, and I'll be able to respond to you right away. But that's the you know I love mentoring and you know. Also, an investor. Uh, very proud of some of the investments that I've made, and so I'd love to hear ideas or just people just stopping and saying hello. Yeah, you know? 
Amazing. Well, Mahmoud, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.